0: Romans chapter 4. I want to speak to you today on the subject, a clean slate. Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead, and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the parts that make us think. And I pray today that you would help our minds to get around this. Teach us and speak to us. I pray the Holy Spirit would fill me, that I would say only those things I ought to, that my teaching today would be clear and accurate and practical. And I pray that we'd all be filled with the Spirit to hear and to learn and to understand. Help us today and help us to rejoice as we think about the wonderful truth that is taught here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Professor Paul has been teaching us some rather interesting things in the book of Romans. Don't you think? Let's review just a little bit. He has taught us that we are all lost and in need of a Savior. We've, we've had that pretty much beat into our head that we stand condemned before God, the Judge of the universe. He has taught us that even though we all need salvation and we all need justification, it's simply not within us to earn it. We don't have the ability within us. Our very best efforts are inadequate. He has taught us that even those who have been gifted with possession of God's revelation, God's law, the Jewish people are in need of salvation and justification because even the very best of them cannot live up to the law. He's taught us the law's purpose. The law's purpose is to point out our need, our inadequacy, our hopelessness. And he has taught us that justification, therefore, comes not from anything we have done or can ever do, but rather solely from what another has done in our place. We are justified by believing in what Jesus did for us in dying on the cross of Calvary, rising again on the third day. So now we come to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, Paul's going to call a couple of witnesses to the podium. And he's going to ask them to make his case. One of them is Abraham, and one of them is David. And so I want us today to look at those two different individuals and what Paul has to say about them. Almost the entirety of chapter 4 is about Abraham. He mentions David just a little bit. So we'll talk about those two. But then there's a word that I want us to also notice that he uses, which is a really cool word. And so we'll get to that in point number three. First of all, let's look at Abraham. Abraham. Romans chapter 4 and verse number 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? Let's ask Abraham, you might imagine Paul saying. What he has to say about this. Abraham, the argument has been summed up so far like this. Romans chapter 3 and verse number 28. We conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Abraham, do you agree or do you disagree? Can a man be justified by works? Can a man be justified by his good deeds? Or is it only by faith? What about you? And at least for the Jewish people in Paul's audience, he could not have picked a more uh, perfect person there would have been nobody that would have been higher on their scale than Abraham. More compelling in his argument than Abraham. One man said, Abraham was the acknowledged father of the Jewish people, and with the exception of Jesus himself as the most important person in the Bible. Abraham is a giant in Scripture. And so the question Paul asks is simple. Was Abraham justified by works? because if this most revered person in all of Judaism was justified by works then Paul's argument about uh, you know justification by faith falls to pieces but if Abraham this most revered this this giant of all faiths was justified by faith rather than works well then Paul could pretty much say I rest my case Abraham Well he starts in the same place we should always start notice what he says in verse number 3 what does the Bible say what does the scripture say And that's where we always ought to start, isn't it? Always, always, always the question we ought to ask, what does the scripture say? Not what does the rabbi say? Not what does the priest say? Not what does the father say? Not what does the preacher say? Not what does the pastor say? Or Sister Susie, who knows her Bible so very, very well, what does she say? None of those things matter. Not what does my Bible study group leader say, or what does my mom say, or my dad say, or, or my brother say, or anybody else. The mega church preacher on TV who uh, smiles a lot. Not doesn't matter what any of them say. It certainly doesn't matter what someone on CNN who does not even saved says. What, that's not the question we ask. What does the Bible say is always the question. And it's not just enough to ask the person who's standing up like I am right now saying, here's what the Bible says. That's not enough. My Bible tells me in Acts chapter 17 and verse number 11 that we're to check it out. Your responsibility is to keep me honest, to keep Don honest, to keep Josh honest, to keep any anybody who's standing up here preaching honest. I can stand here and say to you all day long. Here's what the Bible says. You gonna believe it? You ought not to believe it. You ought to go to the Bible and prove it to yourself. That's what Acts 17:11 says. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word. They listened. They heard the preaching with all readiness of mind, and then they searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. And so Paul says, what does the Scripture say? How was Abraham justified? Was he saved by works or was he saved by faith? What does the Scripture say? Romans chapter 4 and verse number 3, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. How was Abraham saved? He was saved by faith. This is a quotation of Genesis chapter 15 and verse number 6, and Paul is referring to that same Old Testament truth throughout this passage, throughout all of chapter 4. Matter of fact, he mentions it three different times in verse 3, in verse 9, and verse number 22. And in all of those verses, he's answering this important question for us, isn't he? How was Abraham saved? Was he saved by works? Was he saved by faith? How was he justified? And more generally, I think we could say he's also answering the question, how was anybody in the Old Testament saved? And haven't you ever wondered that question? You ever asked that question of yourself? How were people saved before the cross? How were people saved before Jesus uh, came and was born and lived and died and rose again? Well, he answers it here. One man says, how were people saved before the birth, life, and death of Christ? The answer is that they were saved in precisely the same way as people who have lived after those events. They were saved by believing on Jesus. The Old Testament saints looked forward to His coming, and we look back to it. End quote. Abraham received the promise, and he believed God, and that is what saved him. And that is what is accounted to him for righteousness. Interestingly, if you go to to Galatians chapter 3, Paul builds on this thing there. He talks a little bit more and gives a few different details. Goes to the same passage of Scripture in Genesis chapter 15, verse number 6, talking about Abraham. And in that particular place, he makes it very, very clear that Abraham believed in an individual redeemer. And you can go and read Galatians chapter 3 on your own, but let me just pull one verse out of it. Galatians 3.16 Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, capitalized, who is Christ. In other words, the promise God made to Abraham and the promise that Abraham believed was that God would save him and all others through one man, one Redeemer. And that one Redeemer would be of his Uh, offspring his descendants James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary on this said Abraham did not know his name of course but he was looking forward to the coming of this one individual and it was through the channel of his faith in Jesus that God declared him to be a justified person so how was Abraham justified he was justified by faith and what was that faith in that faith was in a coming redeemer It's interesting, isn't it, that all the Old Testament saints looked forward to a coming Redeemer. They all believed that. Now, I don't know exactly how they knew that, but it was revealed to them. They knew that. And uh, they didn't have all the information. We do. They didn't know his name. They didn't know a lot of things about him. They didn't know the details of his earthly ministry or his miracles. They hadn't heard any of his parables. But they knew that there was a coming Redeemer who would be the source of their salvation. Adam believed it. He heard the very first promise of the Redeemer that was ever given. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15, when he heard God say to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Capitalized, individual. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. That was talking about the coming Redeemer. Adam knew it. Jacob believed it. At the end of his life, he had his sons gathered around him to give his blessing to them uh, before he died. And uh, there was an interesting thing that he said. He said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. That's a person. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Jacob knew it. He was looking forward to a coming Redeemer. Moses believed it. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Job believed it. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand at last on the earth. Isaiah believed it. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And the list goes on. They all believed it. This is how people were saved in the Old Testament. They believed the same as we believe. Just like we're saved now in the New Testament age. By faith in the saving merit of another. A Redeemer. The Lord Jesus Christ. There was a lot of talk in this passage about circumcision because he's talking to the Jews and perhaps he was heading off their argument. Maybe some of them would have said, well, wait a minute now. Wait a minute now. What about circumcision? Maybe Abraham uh, was saved because he was part of the covenant people. And that's what they're talking about when you hear all this talk about circumcision. It was the sign. It was the seal of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. Maybe the fact that he was one of us is what justified him. And then there was some talk about the law here as well. What about the law? Wasn't he saved because he obeyed the law? And Abraham's obedience was legendary, wasn't it? Abraham's the one who was willing to sacrifice his own son on Mount Moriah. Wasn't his obedience what justified him? And Paul says the answer in both cases is remarkably simple. The rite of circumcision came along after Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. By some years. Could not have been what justified him. The promise in Genesis 15, 6 predated it by years. And the law didn't come along for 430 years, according to Galatians chapter 3. And so now the example of Abraham is clear. Abraham was justified by faith, faith in a person, faith in a redeemer. What about David? He mentions David as well. Most of the chapter 4 does deal with Abraham, and he's clearly Paul's strongest argument, but he doesn't mention David here. And David would have been another one, wouldn't he? That they would have greatly revered. David, Israel's greatest king. David, the one who was referred to as a man after God's own heart. David, whose love for God and his intimate relationship with him just pours out of the Psalms, most of which he wrote. But David was a sinner. David was a sinner just like you and just like me. David famously committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then in order to cover up that sin... (laughs) He uh, committed another one even worse. He had her husband murdered and married her real quick before the baby was born so that no one would know. But, of course, God knew. Eventually, David got it right, didn't he? And he repented of those, those things. And that's one of the things that makes him the man after God's own heart. But out of that repentance came two of the Psalms, Psalm chapter 32 and Psalm chapter 51. And this quote that we have here in Romans uh, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 is from Psalm 32. And so David, or Paul's asking the question, what about David? Was he justified by works or by faith? And he quotes from Psalm 32 to show that David didn't think so. He didn't think he was, he was justified by works. He said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. <laughs> How could I be justified by works? David is saying, my deeds are lawless. My sins, I, I'm filled with sins. Blessed. Is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. David didn't think he was saved by his works, it was by faith. So in chapter 4, using these two examples, the Apostle Paul has. Uh, has tried to demonstrate that justification is by grace through faith. It's the only way God has ever justified people. It's the way he justifies you and me, and it's the only way he justified even in the Old Testament. He proved it by the example of Abraham, the patriarch, the friend of God, the one through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He proved it by the example of David, the man after God's own heart. You see, if these two supreme examples were not saved by their works, who in the world would be? Certainly not me, and certainly not you. If they could not be saved by works, who could expect to be? Well, there's one other thing I want us to think about. He uses a word here in this passage of Scripture, which is a very interesting word. And it really, it's, it's the whole argument in Romans chapter 4 is based around this particular word. He's used it all throughout his discussion with Abraham. David used the word, and we want to make sure we understand the words. Now, I, I like words. I, I like words. Words are interesting I like words that sound good. I like words like onomatopoeia. Isn't that a great word? That's one of my favorite words. Onomatopoeia or ubiquitous. Isn't that a good word? That's another of my favorites. If you were a child of the 60s, you probably remember weird words like anti-disestablishmentarianism. How many remembers that one? Or if you're fans of, uh, I don't know, Mary Poppins, maybe you remember things like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Can you remember that one? Words. I like words. Well, Paul has given us some wonderful, wonderful words in this letter. So far, he's taught us things like justification. That is a great word. To be declared, declared righteous in the mind of God. Some use the pithy little definition of uh, that it is to be just as if you had never sinned. Justification. Great word. Uh, he's, he's, he's given us the word propitiation here, which is an atonement. A satisfaction. Jesus is the propitiation. His death on the cross satisfied the demands of our holy God. He's given us words like redemption. But now, He's going to give us another great word here. There's a great word in chapter 4. It is used 11 times in chapter 4. And that is the word impute or imputation. Now, this past week, I did what I oftentimes do. I sent an email to our elders. And I said to our elders, I'm going to speak on imputation this week, and uh, I would like your thoughts. Silence. Not one response came back on uh, that. This morning in FBC 101, I said, I'm going to speak on imputation this morning. And somebody spoke up and said, amputation? What are you talking about? And I said, oh, that's going to have to make it into the sermon. That was, that was pretty good. Imputation is a translation of the Greek word logizomai, and it means this. It means to charge to an account, to keep a record of debits and credits, to set something to one's account, to number it among the things belonging to you. If something is imputed to you, it is credited to you. It is attributed as being your possession. If something is, is imputed to you, it is, uh, it, it is legally Yours. Yours. It's been credited to your account. It's an accounting term. An accountant would use it. Credits and debits and journals and ledgers. Imputation. Paul thought it was important because he uses it in verse number 3, verse number 4, verse number 5, verse number 6, verse number 8, verse number 9, verse number 10, verse 11, 22, 23, and 24. He used it 11 times in this passage. Imputation. In, this, in our English translation, that word legizomai is variously translated as impute or accounted or counted or reckoned. You might see it as any of those, but it's all the same word, impute. It described Abraham's relationship with God. It described David's relationship with God. It describes your relationship with God and mine. Now, I'm running out of time, so I can't go too far on this, but, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you study this on your own, and I hope you do. I hope you think about that and say, impute, interesting word. I should go look that up, and I hope you'll do that. But just as a quick summary of what the Bible teaches about it, let me point out that imputation in the Bible, this is a doctrine of imputation, it must be considered in three ways. And let me share those three ways with you. First of all, there is the imputation of Adam's sin to us. That's the first way we have to think about it. Uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, we'll see this again when we get a little further in Romans, but Romans five twelve. therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men. First Corinthians fifteen twenty two. for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Romans chapter 5 and verse 15, but the free gift is not like the offense for if by the one man's offense, many died much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ abounded to many. The imputation of Adam's sin to me, to us. You see, in other words, all these verses are telling us that even though I was not in Eden, even though I did not actively participate in Adam's disobedience, it was nonetheless credited to my account. That sin is there just as surely as if I had taken that fruit from Eve's hand. It's credited to my account. The imputation of Adam's sin to us. Number two is the imputation of our sins to Christ. Now, that first one you might think is unfair. You might think, oh, that's terrible. I don't want to hear that. How could that possibly be? You won't think this one is unfair. It's just the other side of the coin. Now, it's the imputation of our sins to Christ. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah chapter 53. 1 Peter 2.24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died the sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. First Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. In other words, even though Jesus never committed a single one of my sins, he was guilty of them all, for they, every one of them, were debited from my account and credited to his. They were from that moment his sins, not mine. Just as surely as if he had committed every one of them. <laughs> That's an amazing thought. The imputation of Adam's sin to me, the imputation of my sin to Christ, and finally the imputation of Christ's righteousness to me and to us. Notice what he says here in the last verses of our of our passage. Romans chapter four, verse twenty three. It was not written for His sake alone that it was imputed to Him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in Him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. In other words, even though I had no righteousness at all in my own account, none of us did. When God looks at that account now, what does He see? He sees perfect righteousness. Because the righteousness of Christ, all of it, was credited to me. From the moment I believed, from the moment I was justified by faith, I became possessor of His righteousness because it was credited to my account. It was imputed to me. Is this not an amazing word? Think about this word. Adam's sin is my sin because it was charged to my account. It was imputed to me. My sin is Jesus' sin because it was charged to his account. And then Jesus settled that account on the cross and paid off that debt. And now his righteousness is my righteousness because it was imputed to me, credited to my account. I'm seeing a lot of blank stares, but I think it's a wonderful word. Imputation. It explains why a just God could justify the ungodly, as he talks about in Romans chapter 4 and verse number 5. It explains how God could be both just and the justifier, as he talked about in Romans 3.26. He could justify the ungodly because their ungodliness was removed, was removed from their account and put on the account of another, and that other then paid the bill. He could be just and the justifier because his justice was satisfied when that debt was paid. The debt paid by another is no longer on my account. The righteousness of Christ is there instead. And so when God looks at my account, he sees that and declares me justified. Imputation. It's a wonderful word. There's a beautiful example of imputation. It's in the little book of Philemon in your Bible. Philemon is a little one chapter book back toward the end of the New Testament. Philemon was an acquaintance of Paul who had suffered the loss of a slave. The slave's name was Onesimus. Onesimus had run away, and while he was on the run, he had met Paul, which meant, as it always meant when someone met Paul, that they were going to hear the gospel. Paul preached the gospel to Onesimus and ended up leading him to Christ. He got saved. Well, you know, when we get saved, our lives are supposed to change. Suddenly, we're supposed to live a holy life. We're to try to live for Christ. And do right. And in Onesimus' case, one of the things that needed to take place was he needed to go back to Philemon and make things right. He had wronged Philemon and he needed to make that right. And so the little book, of, the little letter of Philemon is Paul sending this personal letter along with Onesimus as he goes back to his former master. And Paul pleading his case to Philemon. Let me just read a little bit of it. It's Philemon uh, verse, or chapter 1 verse 10. I appeal to you. Philemon, for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is my own heart, whom I wished to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary." For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But now, how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Listen to this part. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, in writing with my own hand. I will repay. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own selves besides. Does he owe something? Don't charge it to him. Charge it to me. Put it on my account. I will repay it. You see, that's the transaction that took place on the cross. That's the transaction that takes place when we believe. My sins are put on his account. He pays the price. And then his righteousness is put on mine. So based on the examples of the two greatest Old Testament saints, we can safely conclude once again that justification is by faith and not by works. And it's possible not because God just arbitrarily ignores your sin and mine. He can't do that. But rather because your sin was credited to Christ and his righteousness was credited to you. As the little gospel song said, my sins demanded hell on him the judgment fell i wonder if you realize what this means to you do you understand what this means to you look at those last three verses again in chapter 4 if you're not sure if you think this is just all about abraham if you think it's all about david if you think this is just all about the old testament people or even the people in rome look at those last three verses in chapter 4 it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him but also for Us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in Him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and raised because of our justification. It's not just about Abraham. It's not just about David. It's not just about the Old Testament saints. It's about us. It's about me. It's about you. And so I ask you this morning, have your sins been removed from your account and placed on His? Has His righteousness been credited to your account instead? And when God examines your ledger, does He see your sin? Or does He see Christ's righteousness recorded there? The answer is in verse number 24. It shall be imputed to us who believe. Always it's the same, isn't it? We see it over and over in Romans. Those who believe. If you believe, your sins are gone. Because they were moved to Christ's account. If you believe, then God sees only righteousness when He looks at your account. For Christ's righteousness is there. If you believe, then you, like David, can know the blessedness of the person to whom the Lord will never, ever charge sin. Do you believe?